Well, I think I've, I've mentioned this before uh, to you guys at some point or another, but um, in my first year of ministry, I was, I think, 20 or 21 years old, and I was given an assignment that I did not want. It was something that I was kind of told, this is your area of ministry, you need to take care of this amongst the other things that you're doing. And what it was, was a young adult ministry that uh, the church had at the time that was just uh, very small, kind of a fledgling group. I think there were maybe seven or eight people that would gather each week for you know a little Bible study. And I was assigned this group as uh, one of the ministries that I was supposed to take care of and sort of cut my teeth on, so to speak. And I'll confess to you guys, I just had a really bad attitude about it. I didn't want to do it. It wasn't something that I was gravitating towards. And I think a lot of it had to do with some prideful sort of heart issues that were going on inside of me. I had become convinced that these people in this group, they would not be my people. They were, they were not going to be where I had my community. They were not going to be where I built my friendships. They were not going to be where I made connections uh, in life. And I retained this heart for probably the first three or four months of leading this ministry. And it was, it was really bad. It really showed kind of in my effort. Being a young adult ministry, you know, a lot of times uh, they didn't get there exactly on time. So we had a 7 o'clock start time on Friday nights. And when 7.01 rolled around, I would literally try to leave before anybody got there. I put, try to put a sign on the door, lock the door, and say like, hey, I was here and nobody showed up, so uh, see you guys next week. And the Lord never let me get away with it. You know, I'd be like on my way out the parking lot and some car would start driving in and then before we knew it, there'd be three or four people and we'd have our awkward little meeting and I'd just go home like, oh, this is the worst. I hate doing this. But the Spirit of God has his way with our lives, doesn't he? And he began to minister to me and to show me in my uh, 20, 21-year-old state, you got some real issues, man. You, you can't be thinking this way about this group. You need to throw yourself into this body of believers. You need to pour out your life and energy into this responsibility. It reminds me of the words of Jesus. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our way of thinking is where my heart is, that's what I'll treasure. But Jesus said, no, what you treasure, what you invest in, what you pour out your time and treasure and energy and passion and money, what you pour into, your heart is going to go in that place. And so I began doing that. I began treasuring this group. And God just began doing some really beautiful things in our midst. And I remember a couple of years later, just kind of sitting back, looking at what God had developed in this ministry and realizing that these were most certainly my people. Not that they were just like me or that we had all these shared interests in the fleshly realm, but we were believers who loved Jesus together. And I knew that God's spirit had crafted that in my life. And the reason that I'm telling you that story today is because there's only one exhortation in the paragraph that we just read from 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 to 25. There's only one thing that we're told to do, and a bunch of reasons why we're to do it, but only one thing that we're told to do. It's right there in verse 22. If you look in your Bibles, he said, we must love one another earnestly with a pure heart. 
We must love one another earnestly with a pure heart. Now at this point in his letter, Peter has been trying to prepare us on how to live this exilic Christian life that I'm talking about. A Christianity that is rejected by the mainstream and even ridiculed by the mainstream. How do you live out that Christianity? And Peter has been trying to tell us that there are certain attitudes we need to have. We saw one of them three weeks ago when he told us in verse 13 that we need to set our hope fully on the grace that is coming when Jesus returns. So part of the attitude we got to have is a hope or a confidence, a setting our gaze upon the eternal realm and Jesus' return. He also told us two weeks ago that we need to pursue holiness, that we want to be holy like our Father in heaven is holy. And then last week, Peter told us that we need to fear the Lord. We need to have a respect or reverence or awe of God. And combined with that awe over God, that healthy fear, we're to have a fear of sin and what it can do in our own lives. It's destructive nature within. Now think about all of those with me. All of them can be done alone, by yourself. You can hope in the future coming of the Lord. You can pursue a life of holiness to a degree alone and without anybody else. You can fear the Lord and have a deep reverence for him and an understanding that sin can decimate your life. But you know what you can't do? It's the next thing. You can't do this by yourself. You can't love unless there is another. And that's what Peter wants us to understand. He wants us to shift our mentality to understanding that we must love the body of Christ. As exiles, we must love one another. Now, the reason that I think Peter thought this was so important is because he was writing to people who were beginning to increasingly be marginalized because of their beliefs, marginalized because of their faith. And I believe that we are in a time, there might be some similarities between what we're experiencing today and the age that Peter and his audience were going through in that era, a time where words were being spoken that were hostile to not only the Christians, but to their faith. You know, there was a time not that long ago where, not that everybody was Christian, that has never really been the case in our culture, but where Christianity was, even if you didn't believe it, there might have been an idea that, well, at least it's doing some positive or good things throughout society. I think people that felt this way, it was kind of like, Christianity, it, it might be a fable, it might be untrue, it might, it might be kind of like Aesop's fables, you know, like untrue, but some great life lessons in there, and it makes a good positive impact on somebody's life. I, I never grew up with that kind of perspective or around that kind of perspective. By and large, during the years that I was growing up, the perspective about Christianity in general and culture was, uh, it's, it's untrue, and it's also a little bit silly that you believe in it. You know, so I think the shift kind of went from Aesop's fables to maybe like a belief in Santa Claus or something like that. But we're in a different time in our modern era. It's not seen as something that is untrue but helpful. It's by and large not seen as something that is untrue but silly. Now a shift has been made where many people see it as untrue and dangerous, a problem in society. Partly because it holds up the traditional biblical family. 
and the sexual ethic that's attached to it. And so many people can't even imagine the possibility of human happiness with those kind of constraints placed upon human life. And so many people see Christianity as something that is dangerous in the era that we are living in. And when you're living in an era like that, and I'm not saying every single person on the face of the earth feels this particular way, but it's an increasing sentiment in our society. And as it does, the question is, who are you going to turn to for your community? In the past, you might have been able to turn to people who weren't believers, but, you know, had similar convictions as you, perhaps. But more and more, as the age goes on and develops, we're going to have to turn to the body of Christ. We're going to need brothers and sisters in Christ that we live life with and for. And Jesus loves this community. He's about this community. He shed his blood in order to create, to generate the church, the body of Christ. And so Peter tells us that we must love one another. There are other passages in the word where we're told that we're to love our community, where we're to love our nation, where we're to love the people of this world who are not believers But this particular exhortation is from Peter saying there's a special love for the body of Christ that we must live out as believers. Now make no mistake, when you jump into, press into the church like Peter wants you to, there will be moments that you get hurt. There will be moments that you become confused. There will be moments where you are misunderstood. And there will be awkward moments. Absolutely, there will be awkward moments. You can't put multiple generations and multiple perspectives all together in the same room without some awkward moments. Sometimes people ask me, you know, Nate, do you ever collect anything? And I tell them, I don't really have anything that I collect, but I'm a pastor, so I work with a lot of people, so I collect awkward moments. A lot of them are my own doing. The things that I've said, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Why did I do that? You know, that was awkward. But that's just life in the body of Christ. And there will be times where you experience that awkwardness or hurt or strain or stretching, but this is good for us and our character. Now notice how Peter tells us that we're to love one another. Verse 22, he said, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In other words, Peter is not proposing that we love one another just with a distant feeling. You know, yeah, technically, I I love everybody here. That's an easy thing to do. I I love everybody here, and then I'm just out of here, you know, and I I don't know anything about you, but I, I just, I love everybody here, and then I'm gone. No, it's much more difficult to earnestly love each other with a pure heart. That word earnest, it speaks to me of, of a real devotion, expending yourself and your energy towards, and in this case, it's loving one another. You know, I, I told you guys a few weeks ago about uh, a friend of mine that I made many years ago who uh, was from Denmark, came and lived here in the peninsula for a couple of years. We became close friends, and then he ended up moving back to Scandinavia and was working there. He's now in England. But I've gone and visited him a few times, and um, one of the things that he was most excited about the first time that I went to visit him was to take me to a Danish uh, soccer match. It was something he was really excited about. And the reason that he was excited about it is because when he was here in the States, he'd gone to a bunch of our sporting events, and he said, you guys are so boring at your sporting events, you know? I think he went to an Oakland A's game one time, and he said, I just, 
you know, you guys cheered like five times for three hours. There were like five moments where people applauded something. He said, you guys are just sitting around eating and talking, and it was just so boring. So he was so excited to take me to this soccer match, and I'll never forget it. You know, there were probably 50,000 people there, and, uh, you know, we kind of got in there, and everybody's just doing what we would do at a soccer match, you know, before the game, just kind of talking, chatting, whatever. It was no big deal, and then they began with the national anthem. And, you know, here in the States, you know, we have to do a lot of stuff to, like, pump ourselves up at the national anthem. You know, we've got, like, fighter jets and, you know, some superstar singing the song and stuff like that. And that's, like, gets us, gets us going. Or amped. I think they just, like, played a CD, like, in the background. Just had the music kind of going for 50,000 people. And then it just shocked me. Everybody just started singing at the top of their lungs the national anthem. I was like, man, these people really like Denmark, you know, they're into it. And so I thought, okay, that's cool, passion. And then the next thing that happened was they started announcing the team, all the players. And you know how we do it, you know, we get the special announcer with the music and all that, with like we really hype it up. They had none of that. The announcer would just say the player's first name, super monotone, and then 50,000 people would chant his last name. I mean, it gave me chills just thinking about it. It was like, Jonas Jensen, you know, the whole stadium just going nuts. I was like, wow, this is crazy. And then when it was time to start the game, I thought, okay, now we sit down, right? And we just kind of watch the game. No, we stood the whole time for two hours. I mean, I think soccer is pretty boring myself, so I'm just kind of like, I don't really know what's going on. But they were into it. They were singing songs. They were cheering. I mean, it was just passion the whole time. And when Peter tells us that we're to love one another earnestly with a pure heart, that's kind of the image that comes into my mind. An earnest desire. You know, aggressively saying, man, this is what I'm going to be about. And I think that when we're in an age where the church is more on the margin or the fringe, we've got to figure out ways to press in to our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that's really the exhortation today, but I just want to wrap it up by pointing out to you three reasons that Peter gives for us to be a people who love one another. And the first reason is this. The first reason is holiness. The first reason is holiness. Look at verse 22 with me. He starts out this little passage by saying, having purified our souls by obedience to the truth. You see, Peter, in the previous sections, had been telling us, you need to be holy as God is holy. You need to fear the Lord, have a reverence for God. And now he says, you know, having done that, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. In other words, God cleansed you, he forgave you, you believed the gospel one day, and then you kind of said, now I want to get into the truth and I want God to grow me. I want God to change me. I want to be sanctified and purified. And so he's saying, having done that, having purified your souls, practically speaking, you've experienced sanctification, you've grown from that position that thing that you've done and that has happened to you, you launch out from that newfound holiness within and you are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And the reason why this is impactful to me is because the word love, it's, it's almost a word I don't even want to use anymore. 
It's a word that's been hijacked in so many ways to where it's become meaningless. For many people, at the very least, love is just a feeling, kind of a sentiment. If I say I love you, then I just kind of mean something like along the lines of, I have some kind of feeling about you. Whereas Jesus poured out love by actual sacrifice, doing. But at worst, in our modern time, love has become, has come to mean things like acceptance at the neglect of truth or approval that flies in the face of wisdom. In other words, for many, what is true and what is wise is no longer equated with love. But here Peter says, no, you've purified your souls. You're living that holy life. And from that holy life, you are to pour out your love. And this is the best kind of life, to understand that love is rooted in our pursuit of holiness. And I want to encourage you in this point, because I think a lot of times people attach love to things like sympathy or empathy, emotions, feelings. But I want you to connect it to a life of holiness. I want you to connect it to God's very best for a person's life. One example of this might come from the life of Moses. You guys remember Moses? You know, Moses was a, was a wild man who experienced some incredible things. And one of the things that Moses experienced over and over again was the holiness of God. I'd be hard-pressed to think of anybody in Scripture who interacted with God's holiness more than Moses. You know, there came a point when he was 80 years old, he's just taking care of his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of the Midianite wilderness, and he sees a bush that is burning yet not consumed. And he's curious about it, so he goes up to check it out, and he hears a voice from God saying, the place where you stand is holy ground. And he began interacting from that point forward with the holy God. He saw God pour out plagues upon Egypt, an expression of God's holiness. He went up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights where he interacted with the holiness of God, God's presence, so holy that no one else was allowed to ascend the mountain. It was Moses and Moses alone, lest everyone else die. The holiness of God. And when he came down and delivered the law to them, he then began interacting with God every single day in a place called the Tent of Meeting. And God's holiness impacted him to the point that every moment that he left the tent of meeting, he actually had an afterglow of God's holiness upon his life. Moses interacted with the holiness of God. And you know what it did to Moses? Well, I'll tell you what it didn't do. It didn't make Moses into a cranky pants that nobody wanted to be around. Not at all. It made Moses into an intensely loving person. He fought hard to see the Israelite slaves set free from their captivity. He worked hard to get the law of God delivered to God's people. He worked day and night serving them and answering their questions. He even at one point prayed and asked God if he could be a substitute for the nation, that he could die so that they might live and experience God's promises. The heart of Christ had come into him because he had interacted with the holiness of God. You see, I think what happens to a person who's experiencing God as he is, holy, and pursuing that holy life, what they begin to discover is this is the best. 
This is the best life there is. It is so good and rich and full and sustaining and fulfilling. And then from that position, they drive forward in love to others so that others might have that same similar experience to know the Lord. But there's a second reason that Peter gives for us loving one another, and it's this. It's that we're born again. We have a new birth. Look at verse 23 with me in your Bibles. He said, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, this is not a new concept from Peter that we're born again. He talked about it all the way back in verse 3, talked about how we're born again. In fact, he kind of tripped out about salvation in the first couple of paragraphs of his letter. Remember the moment where he said, the prophets foretold about this salvation and the angels are trying to study our salvation today? He rejoiced that when we believe in Jesus, we are born again. But here he tells us how we've been born again. He says, you've been born again, not with perishable seed, but with an imperishable seed of God, the living and abiding word of God. Now, the Bible uses a lot of different images to describe itself. It talks about itself as a lamp that kind of illuminates our lives, our path, helps us make right decisions. It talks about the word or itself as a hammer that kind of breaks away at our hardness of heart. It talks about itself as water that cleanses us as we go through everyday life. We need to be in the Word so that we can be kind of cleansed because of the things that we experience throughout life. We need God's encouragement and washing ministry of His Word. It talks about itself as a sword or as a mirror that illuminates our lives. But here, Peter likens the Word to an incorruptible seed. And I like that he does this because I'm sure many of you are thinking about how Jesus did this. Jesus compared the word, the word of God and the word of the gospel that's in the word of God to a seed. Remember how he told the parable of the sower? He said that some seed was sown by a farmer on the wayside or the highway or the path that people traveled upon. And the birds of the air were able to come and quickly eat them up. And what Jesus explained is that people like that, that are pictured in that first soil, are those who cannot even give a moment's thought to the gospel. They hear it, and it's just in one ear, out the other. There's no even opportunity for them to think about what the Lord is saying. Jesus then said that some seed fell on the stony ground. It grew up for a little bit, but it withered once the weather conditions became difficult. And Jesus said that that stony ground represents those who have joy for the gospel until Christianity becomes difficult in some way in their lives. And some seeds, Jesus said, fell on thorny ground. And it grew up, but it was choked out by thorns and thistles and weeds that grew up with it. And Jesus said that that kind of ground represents those who get caught up in the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. But Jesus said that some seed some of that word fell on good soil. These people, Jesus said, are those who hear the word, believe it, and accept it, and they bear amazing fruit. It's not snatched away. The word has depth to grow. It lacks competition, and these people bear fruit. And Peter seems to be thinking about his audience as those who have already received 
this kind of seed within their hearts. He saw his audience as people who'd been rocked by the true and real word of God. And with this new birth, which had been caused by God's incorruptible seed growing in them, they were bound in Peter's mind to bear fruit. This is why this is important for you and me today. When we are confronted with scriptures like these that tell us that we're to love the body of Christ, that we're to love the church, you know, some people are just naturally inclined to that kind of exhortation. You know, they're the kind of people, they're just like people people. And they just love, like the idea of, you know, when they hear a verse about like loving one another, they're thinking about like potlucks and get-togethers and times where they're drinking coffee with other Christians and just constant hangout sessions every day, all day with other Christians. And they're just pumped up about it. And then there's some of us who, if you were to describe that kind of life to us, it's like, oh, that does not sound good. That is not, I'm not wanting to do that. And we might be thinking to ourselves, I, I feel really limited in this. And I don't feel like I've got what it takes to love people in the church. Some of you might even like be out of the corner of your eye, like trying to look around right now. You're like, okay, well, these are the people I'm supposed to do this to. So I don't know. Do I have what it takes for that guy or that guy or that guy? Or you might be looking at me going like, I don't think I can do it. You know, you're probably having all these different feelings within. But the feeling of limitation, on one hand, it's good because in our flesh, we can do no good thing. You know, in our own natural limitations, the remnants of our old nature, it's impossible. We will not be able to love one another very well. The first moment that someone sins against us, the first moment that our love is not reciprocated and it becomes one direction only, uh, we'll, we'll lose it. We won't be able to continue. But what Peter is saying is that when you receive the incorruptible seed of the gospel within, you are so born again that you receive a new nature from God. And that part of you, that new creature within, that part of you is able to love the body of Christ. The newness that God has deposited within you. What did Paul say in Galatians 5 verse 22? He said, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Many other things which I think extend from love, but the fruit of the Spirit is is love. The Spirit of God working within you, what will he produce? He will produce love, partly love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But let's wrap it up with one last reason why we really should spend our lives, our time and our energy, making room to make sure that we love the body of Christ, that we love one another. And, and believe me, as I share all of this, kind of in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about those of you who uh, perhaps you're younger and you're in a place in life where the church is at a distance for you, unless you really become part of the body, come, become part of the church, you're going to have a really difficult time enduring the years to come. And so I'm praying for you that you'll be able to love the church in some greater ways. But the third reason that Peter gives to us for loving one another is this, because the church lasts forever. The church lasts forever. And for that, let's read verse 24 and 25. Notice what Peter said. He said, for all flesh is like grass 
and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Okay, now when, when Peter said this, what he's doing is he's just quoting from the book of Isaiah. It's his Bible, Isaiah 40, he's quoting from. And Isaiah said these things on behalf of God to a generation of Israelites who were about to be carried off into a period of captivity in Babylon. They'd neglected God's commands for centuries, and now God was going to discipline them with a season of captivity in Babylon. But as much as Babylon would come in power and authority, God assured his people through Isaiah 40 and other places that Babylon would not last forever. Babylon, even in all their glory, Isaiah is saying, is like the grass. The grass always withers. The flower always falls. But God's promises to the people of Israel back in Isaiah 40 that they would eventually return from Babylonian captivity, God's word does remain forever. It's always true. And this helps us understand that though the kingdoms and philosophies of the world might seem strong to us, you know, as if they're a fortress that cannot be defeated, the reality is that they're like the grass and the flower which eventually wither. Even the invincible Roman government that the people Peter wrote to were under a machine of eventual persecution, even the Roman Empire would not last forever. But God's word and all the promises in it about his kingdom will endure forever. So why should we love God's people? Well, holiness demands it. The new birth makes it possible. But we should also love the church community because it will last forever. Babylon will not last forever. The views of our planet and world today will not last forever. The philosophies of right now will not last forever. The kingdoms of man will not endure forever. But God, his promises to his people, they will endure forever. In fact, those first three soils that heard the word but had a negative response, the thing that saddens me the most about people in those first three camps is that they are investing in a kingdom that will not last. Babylon will break. Babylon will not endure. But the shocking truth throughout all of this is that what will endure is our teeny little thing that we've got going on right here. Our little holiness-pursuing, word-loving, gospel community, we will endure forever. And this is a truth that God hints at all throughout his word. In the age of Noah, who made it through? Not the mass of humanity, but a man and his family. God chose Abraham and Sarah when they had no children, and Sarah was barren for many years. God chose a small group of slaves in Egypt to become his nation. God chose the eighth and last and forgotten son of Jesse to become the king of Israel and the killer of Goliath. And when Jesus came, he went to places like Bethlehem and Nazareth and ministered in the region of Galilee, forgotten and backwoods kind of places, rather than go to Jerusalem, the primary place in Israel at the time. And when he made his group of disciples, he didn't choose the elite. 
He didn't choose those who were well-educated and trained in the things of the Bible, but he chose fishermen and tax collectors and zealots to form his team. This is God's way. This is God's way. He takes the small and humble and powerless, and he elects them to become his because he chooses that which is weak. And so I just love this, brothers and sisters. Here is God saying through Isaiah, saying through Peter, and saying to us today, hey, no matter what philosophy comes down, no matter what the general mood of society might be, the reality is it won't last forever. But God's word and his kingdom and his promises, they will endure forever and ever and ever. To borrow from C.S. Lewis, you know, one day our Aslan is going to return and winter will be no more. So let me wrap this up before we take communion by giving you guys five uh, applications that you can take home. Number one, an application to this passage, I think would be this, stop looking forever for a church. I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but some people do look for a church forever. You know, they're just kind of always checking out a church and they're surfing and looking around and all of that, and that's fine, you know, you need to do your due diligence, but there will come a point where you just need to make the decision, this is my church, this is where I'm going to throw myself into. You will not get the benefits of the body of Christ unless you do. And then number two, get involved with your church. Get plugged in with a small group in your church, like a life group or discipleship group or both. And then serve in your church. It's a great way to meet people and be together with those in the church. And then Lastly, number five, just deal with the warts that are going to exist in your church family. My, my 13-year-old daughter was helping me put my notes in my little sleeves this morning, and she saw that fifth point. She thought that I meant literally, like if you have warts, literal ones, you should really deal with those. And that might be something you want to do for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But what I mean is, hey, we all got issues. The reality is we're just going to have to deal with the fact we're imperfect people trying to pursue holiness together.